Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. Israel will be receiving a very special visitor next week, U.S. President Joe Biden. While expectations aren't high for a major diplomatic breakthrough, there are several big issues on the president's agenda for when he's here in the Middle East. Repairing ties with Saudi Arabia, increasing Arab normalization with Israel, Iran, and the Palestinian question, to name just a few. To help us review the upcoming Biden visit, we have a fantastic guest on today's episode, Ambassador Martin Indyk. Martin, of course, served as the U.S. Ambassador to Israel twice, Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs, and as a special envoy for Israeli-Palestinian peace talks in 2013 and 2014. Martin is currently a Distinguished Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and a member of Israel Policy Forum's Board of Directors and Advisory Board. Martin is also the author of a terrific new book, which came out last year, called Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy. This was a terrific conversation about how presidential visits are managed, U.S. diplomacy in the Middle East writ large, the current state of the two-state solution, and of course, Kissinger. Let's get into it. Hi, Martin. Thank you so much for joining the Israel Policy Pod. Great to be with you, Neri. Um, I'm honored to be a guest. It's our honor to uh, to have you, Martin. Uh, thank you for taking the time. So a lot to get into with the big news, of course, uh, the upcoming visit by President Biden to Israel, Palestine, and Saudi Arabia next week. Um, U.S. presidential visits uh, to Israel in particular, I think, are a big deal um, and don't happen as often as at least I imagined, uh, just looking back at the historical record, um, I think from President Nixon to now President Biden, uh, all presidents came here. Interestingly, though, not Reagan or George H.W. Bush, which uh, I found in the historical record. Interesting. Um, so before we get into the particulars of the Biden visit, I wanted to start with maybe a broader look at what goes into such high-level presidential visits, how they've come about maybe in the past, what their you know various goals have been throughout the decades. Really take us behind the scenes uh, based on your own formidable government experience, how these trips kind of are managed and, and handled. Well, uh, presidential visits to anywhere are a huge uh, undertaking and a logistical nightmare. And um, they tend to be organized around the president's priorities, as you would expect. Uh, because the Middle East uh, used to be a very big priority, uh, presidents would visit there fairly regularly. I think uh, President Clinton, whom I worked with, uh, both in the White House and as ambassador to Israel, made three trips there uh, while he was president. Uh, but Barack Obama famously only made one uh, after uh, his uh, re-election for his second term uh, and was subjected to a lot of criticism for that. And I think that's uh, the model that, that uh, is on President Biden's mind when he decided to come now. There was no pressing need to come now other than that the Democrats are facing a very difficult midterm election. They could, they will most likely lose the House, may lose the Senate. And, and uh, that's bad news for a president. Uh, and so I think that his main purpose in timing now was not because anything in particular was going on in Israel. Indeed, given the collapse of the, of the uh, Bennett Lapid government, uh, you could argue it's not a particularly good time for him to come. Um, right. Don't, don't worry. We'll get, we'll get into that. Okay. So therefore, he, you know, I think that that was driven much more by, by the American political calendar than any events out in the Middle East. And that tells you something about where the priorities are for President Biden when it comes to the Middle East. Right. And in terms of past historical precedent, have previous presidents geared their Middle East trips, their Israel trips to usually uh, a major foreign policy initiative? Is it, you know, sometimes uh, an affirmation of ties? Is it usually very specific or more maybe, as the case now with Biden, more amorphous? 
No, it's usually uh, specific and tied to a particular initiative, as you suggested. The most obvious was when when the Arab-Israeli peace process was active. Uh, President Clinton was going out there either to try to push the process forward. Uh, so, he, for instance, he made a, a famous trip to uh, Syria on the way to Israel one year, uh, beginning of his presidency. Uh or it was to to try to salvage the peace process, uh, in particular after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and, and Clinton, uh, then came out and basically intervened in, in the election campaign of Shimon Peres to try to get him re-elected to salvage the peace process. Uh, so so usually it's it's been tied to that kind of uh, event. But since the peace process is more or less dormant now, um, and since the action is elsewhere, not just on the international stage, but also in the region, uh, the trip to Israel takes on more of a, a political uh, dimension and, and uh, to serve the president's political agenda. That said, whenever a president goes anywhere, the focus of his staff is on deliverables. We can't just have him turn up and make a speech. What is he going to be able to deliver? And that is a question that has really been, I think, on the minds of his staff uh, for some time now. So let's get into that. The objectives, goals of the Biden visit, the deliverables, as you suggest. Um, Before we started recording, I suggested to you that, at least to my mind, Israel uh, wasn't the main center of gravity next week, which may come as a shock to, uh, to many Israelis I know who... Uh, consider Israel to be the center of everything. Uh, but to my mind, arguably, Saudi Arabia will be the main center of gravity next week for some of the reasons that you alluded to just now in terms of domestic politics. Um, but in your opinion, though, uh, first of all, is that is that correct in terms of Saudi or Israel being the main center of gravity or a combination of the two? Uh, and also, in your opinion, Martin, you know, what do you think are the main central goals slash deliverables uh, for the Biden visit next week? What are we likely to see? So when this trip was originally conceived, as I understand it, uh, it was really focused on on Israel and the need to get the president out there in the first term. And if he was going to come out in the first term, better to do it before the midterms and try to get some political bounce at home uh, out of it. Uh, But that trip planning was quickly eclipsed by uh, Saudi Arabia. And at first... Uh, Saudi Arabia was not on the agenda because the president had labelled uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, a, a pariah, uh, put him in the penalty box for his role in the uh, murder and, and dismemberment of uh, Saudi journalist uh, Khashoggi and uh, basically wasn't dealing with him at all until uh, inflation the Ukraine war and the tightness in the oil market uh, with prices spiking at $120 or higher led uh, people around the president to start to work on him, to convince him that as much as he would have to uh, hold his nose, he was going to have to bring uh, MBS out of the uh, penalty box um, in order to help reduce the pressure on oil prices by getting the Saudis to pump more oil, which would reduce inflation, which arguably would be far more important politically to the president than a glad handing by Israeli politicians in Jerusalem. And do you, uh, were you surprised that Biden came around, that he has actually accepted the fact that he's going to fly to Saudi and while it's a regional summit in Jeddah planned for late next week, uh, he will be, I guess, meeting with Saudi Crown Prince MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, um, kissing the ring, as it were, although I'm sure the Biden folks will not like that term or phrase. Well, he's done it very reluctantly, and you can see it whenever he's asked publicly, uh, is he going to uh, meet with uh, Mohammed bin Salman? He bristles. And he says, no, 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 he's just going to an international meeting and, and 
Crown Prince might happen to be there. Uh, so he's clearly not comfortable with it. He's embracing it reluctantly. Uh, and I don't think that's just a, a pose for the progressive uh, wing of the Democratic Party who's basically outraged by this. It's that he personally doesn't feel very comfortable with it and it took quite a while to convince him that he needed uh, to do it. Uh, and there, therefore, I think it's kind of, it's it's sort of unfortunate because Anybody who fills up their gas tank knows that uh, we need a way to bring down the price of gasoline. And uh, anybody who does that holds the President of the United States directly responsible, even though there's not a great deal he can do about it. That's just the reality. And it's, it's, I think, having a devastating impact on his approval rating. So I think the American public would say, yeah, we understand MBS is a nasty guy, but, but you're the president, you've got to do what you've got to do and simply embrace it as a, as a real politic, um, you know, supping with the devil, as it were, in order to get uh, relief for American uh, taxpayers, workers, basically everybody that's affected by this. Um, but because of his reluctance to do it, you're seeing this as a much more carefully choreographed arrangement where the White House seems to have terrible trouble getting its talking points in line with the, where the president is coming from. And, and uh, I think that that is having uh, a, an effect, a negative impact in, in Riyadh where uh, the original thought I've just come back from Riyadh. Uh, the original thought was, you know, the the president of the United States is finally admitting that he made a mistake and that he needs us, and you know, we'll be gracious about it. But they're getting to the point where if he's if Biden's not going to be gracious about it, well, maybe we will won't be so forthcoming in the kinds of things he wants us to do. So there's a lot of I think effort now to try to put this in in place in a way that will make it a success, but it's it's still being worked. Interesting, even uh, just over a week out of Biden actually going to Saudi Arabia. Right, now, and, and part, of the, part of the issue here is if, he, if Biden is going to do what he's going to do, he wants to be able to point to a result that justifies it. Uh, the result that justifies it will be a Saudi decision to pump more oil. The Saudis are the only oil-producing, exporting country that has excess capacity. Now, there's a lot of debate about what they have, but I believe they have something like 1.5 billion barrels a day of excess capacity that they can pump into the market. The UAE has another uh, 500,000 that would bring it up to 2 million barrels a day. The mere signal to the market that that's what the Saudis are going to do will depress prices. Uh, and that, together with the expectations of global recession, uh, will also uh, depress prices. But the Saudis have an agreement with the Russians, who are the third largest oil producer, uh, an agreement, by the way, that was broken by Donald Trump, thank you very much, um, which uh, provides for restrictions on output. And the Saudis don't want to break that commitment because the whole uh, arrangement with OPEC producers is based on everybody living up to their commitments. So my sense is that, that the oil is not going to come on the market until September. The Saudis are reluctant to come out with a clear statement that the oil will uh, be increased after September. And so it's still at this time a, a question mark as to whether Biden will have the deliverable he needs to point to to justify his embrace uh, for the crown prince. Uh, remarkable uh, that a lot hinges on a Saudi decision to effectively pump more oil. Um, Martin, in terms of other deliverables and maybe possibly positive and concrete deliverables, uh, Israel and the normalization process that's been ongoing now for two plus years uh, with the Arab states. Now, there's been a lot of talk ahead of Biden's visit that uh, 
perhaps some new measures, some new moves will be announced in terms of Israeli-Saudi normalization or perhaps Israeli normalization with maybe other Arab states. Do you, uh, do you hold maybe more optimism on that file in terms of Biden coming to Israel and then to, to Saudi Arabia? Yes, I do. I, I don't mean to be pessimistic about the oil deal. Realistic. I do believe that that the fix is in. It's just not going to necessarily come out in a kind of big hoopla uh, statement uh, in the way that the White House might want. Uh, as far as the normalization process is concerned, that too has a, you know, has a Saudi twist. Saudi Arabia, of course, has been the big prize, the crown jewel in the normalization uh, crown for Israel, for understandable mm -hmm. reasons. Uh, you know, it's the, the country that, that leads the, the Arab and Muslim world as the custodian, the king as the custodian of the two holy mosques of Mecca and Medina. It has considerable influence uh, in the region. And of course, as as uh, one of the largest oil producers in the world, it has also influence there and, and, and influence from the money that comes from the, uh, the selling of this oil. Um, so they're big players in the region and they're the, the last big one to hold out in the normalization process. So it, it would make a big difference. Uh, and in fact, there's not much that holds up the normalization when it comes to the attitudes of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He wants to get past this issue. He sees Israel as an important player in the region. Most importantly of all, he wants to work with Israel on the strategic level to counter the threat, the common threat that they both perceive from Iran. And he has some very real needs when it comes to protecting his country from the missiles, uh, drones, and rockets that the Iranians have specialized in developing and have given to the Houthis, these uh, Yemenis who are fighting Saudi Arabia on its southern border and, and using these rockets and drones on a regular basis to, to attack Saudi Arabia. So there's some very real, uh, tangible common interests uh, that lead Saudi Arabia and Israel to work together. But the Saudis have always wanted to work below the radar screen. People may be surprised to hear that the Saudis have had a strategic relationship with Israel since the 1960s, um, but it's always been under the radar. And, and to bring it out, out of the closet, as it were, uh, is not as simple for Saudi Arabia as it is for small countries like the United Arab Emirates or Bahrain or distant countries like Morocco. Um, partly because of the Saudis' role in the Muslim world, partly because a population of over 30 million uh, have been raised on a diet of anti-Semitic diatribes for decades, um, they're not so ready uh, to embrace uh, Israel. And, and they uh, have a greater concern about the Palestinians than some of the smaller state leaders that have, have embraced Israel. And the king himself, who's not altogether there, but nevertheless has, he's the king, he gets to decide in the end, right. uh, cares about Jerusalem. And as the third holy mosque, uh, he has some uh, considerable concern about that. So that these various things uh, lead the Saudis to do small steps, not big steps. Nevertheless, I believe that they will take some small steps during this visit. Uh, President Biden will fly directly from Israel to Saudi Arabia. Um, I, I think that, that there'll be some announcement about Israel being able to use Saudi airspace for its aircraft to fly to Asia. Um, and uh, possibly uh, for Israeli Muslims and, even, and Palestinian Muslims to fly directly from some Israeli airports to Mecca. Uh, to undertake the pilgrimage. Uh, and behind all of that is an understanding that we reached on the, on the strategic level about some islands in the Red Sea that are being handed over from Egypt to Saudi Arabia and the Saudis need to give Israel assurances about freedom of navigation and the United States is brokering those assurances. Those seem to be the steps that, that 
are being contemplated now rather than the big engagement, rather than, for instance, um, an Israeli prime minister turning up in, in Riyadh for this regional meeting that the president is having with the Saudis, the other members of the GCC states, plus Egypt, Jordan, and Iraq. You know, Israel is the kind of missing uh, power on the regional level in that meeting. They share a common interest with Israel in terms of combating Iran. That is the heart of, of the effort here that the president is, is convening them for to discuss. Uh, and I, Israel is the silent partner, mm-hmm. but Saudis are not yet ready, at least as far as I know, unless we have some surprising breakthrough, are not yet ready to have them in the room, notwithstanding the common interest. Uh, and so just to tie up the issue of Biden and the goals and deliverables uh, coming up ahead of next week. Are there any other issues to your mind that will play prominently uh, when Biden is either here in Israel or or in Saudi Arabia? Uh, I think maybe, you know, the common Iranian threat, which is heavily on the minds of Israeli policymakers, or uh, dare we even mention the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Uh, what do you think about those two issues or or maybe other issues that that I haven't mentioned. We better dare, um, because in a way, the Palestinian issue, while hardly uh, a major feature, is still um, critical to uh, everything that the president is trying to do. And that is part of the reason why he will be going to Bethlehem on this trip uh, to meet with. President Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, um, and announcing some deliverables on that front in terms of aid to the Palestinians, particularly aid to Palestinian hospitals in East Jerusalem, which will also ease the financial burden of the Palestinian Authority, uh, which can't pay the bills of, of the West Bank patients who get treated in East Jerusalem hospitals. So. Doesn't sound like a big deal. It's not a big deal, but it is a way of demonstrating that the president, at least, has not forgotten about uh, the Palestinians. Um, and the Palestinians will be the kind of ghost of, of the uh, Jeddah summit as, as well. And I think that, that while nothing much can be expected on this front, notwithstanding a visit of the the president, um, because of Israel's now going through an election, not a great time to expect any leader, uh, let alone a leader that doesn't have a majority in parliament, um, to take on some kind of Palestinian initiative. Um, But but nevertheless, uh, there is an opportunity here that we... Uh, especially the Israel Policy Forum, should never lose sight of. And that is uh, as follows. Then what's called the Negev Summit process, which is a kind of adjunct process of the Abraham Accords, is one in which those countries that have signed up for the Abraham Accords are now coming together to promote regional uh, issues. And uh, that brings in Egypt and Jordan into uh, the umbrella of the Abraham Accords process. Egypt and Jordan, of course, already have peace treaties with Israel. But as we know, they they kept Israel at arm's length for decades now. Uh, but the Abraham Accords has given them the cover and the incentive to warm up their relations with Israel, and that's what they're doing. As they do that, they bring the Palestinian issue into the tent. Because for them and for their people, the Palestinian issue counts for far more than it does for the other members of the Abraham Accords axis. And and so at the same time, you see Egypt is moving into Gaza in a way that it has never done before, with a significant presence there and a much greater influence on, on Hamas. And Jordan is slowly but surely uh, doing the same thing in the West Bank to try to prop up the Palestinian Authority, which is in 
pretty bad shape, both financially and politically. And so you see that process, which isn't very obvious in itself, but it is very much tied to the Abraham Accords process. Now, if you accept that Saudi normalization is going to require some progress on the Israeli-Palestinian front, which is what the Saudis keep on saying, then bringing the Saudis in step-by-step into into the process brings another Arab power with influence into the Palestinian issue. And I believe that Egypt, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia, working with the Palestinian Authority and Israel, can provide a a new dynamic uh, when the parties are ready that can be very helpful in terms of of getting us out of the mud that we've been stuck in for so long. Right. Um, I mean, hopefully that is, uh, these increasing regional ties between Israel and the Arab world can be leveraged to to make progress on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. That's the principle. But we know the practice doesn't amount to much if it's the UAE or Bahrain or Morocco. It does amount to something if it's Egypt, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. They have much more influence on the Palestinians. They are much more interested in trying to make something happen on the Palestinian front. Right. They uh, they care a lot more about the issue. Uh, Martin, final question on on this topic. If you were advising this U.S. president, how how straightforward, how boldly would you tell him to uh, pronounce, shall we say, on the Israeli-Palestinian issue when he's in Jerusalem? Would you recommend to him to... Uh, clearly reaffirm the U.S. position in terms of two states, um, you know, viable and sovereign Palestinian state living alongside a Jewish and democratic Israel? Um, or would you have him, say, fudge it a little bit more? No, I think he should be very clear. I think he should actually do something on Jerusalem, but I'm not sure that he should do that in Jerusalem or even in Bethlehem with with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president. Um I think that actually the best place for him to do it, the place where it would have the most impact, uh, is in Riyadh when he speaks to the GCC plus three. The, the plus the three is Jordan and, and Egypt and Iraq. Um, why do I say that? Because the president is unable to fulfill his commitment to the Palestinians that he will reopen the consulate in Jerusalem. Even the, the minor administrative adjustment of having the Palestinian Affairs Unit in, in the embassy report directly to, to Washington rather than through the ambassador is, is causing a, a storm of protest from the usual quarters. Um, so I think that, that it's, it's important for the president to lay out our position not only on the issue of two states for two people, but also on the issue of a capital for both states uh, in Jerusalem. And an American position, uh, even of Donald Trump, by the way, in his plan, and something that I think has been lacking in the statements about equal dignity and, and freedom and blah, blah, blah that the administration seems to trot out on every occasion. Tired rhetoric by now. Uh, I think it's important for the president in his support for a two-state solution to make clear what his position is on Jerusalem as well and to do it in the Saudi capital, not the Saudi capital, the Saudi city of Jeddah, in front of the Saudis, uh, could be used as part of a uh, you know an effort to to move the Saudis forward forward and get them to take bigger steps. So I'd like him to to say you know in the context of laying out his strategy for the region that part of the strategy is to uh, resolve conflicts in Yemen, in Libya, uh, in Syria, uh, and also in Palestine, and where we support the two state solution where the United States has, uh, for a long time, 
uh, argued that not only should we have our capital in Jerusalem and uh, our embassy in Jerusalem and recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, but we should also recognize that the Palestinians aspire to have their own capital in East Jerusalem. And when the final status negotiations deal with this issue and resolve it, I, you know, I look forward to the day when uh, not only will we have uh, an embassy, U.S. embassy uh, in Jerusalem to recognize Israel's capital, but also a U.S. embassy in East Jerusalem to recognize the Palestinian state and its capital. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to turn, with your permission, Martin, to an issue near and dear to, uh, well, my lived reality at the moment, which is uh, domestic Israeli politics. Uh, you mentioned earlier that Biden's coming here next week in the middle of, uh, let's say, a tumultuous time in the Israeli polit- political scene. Uh, the Bennett Lapid government obviously uh, didn't last much longer than a year. Uh, Israel is now in the midst of its fifth election in less than four years. Um, and obviously, there's a new Israeli prime minister, uh, Yair Lapid. So, my first question to you is do you think this will actually shade Biden's visit here? one way or another, that a Democratic U.S. president is coming to meet an Israeli center-left prime minister uh, in the midst of an election campaign? Well, I have had some history and experience with this myself. (laughs) Yes, you have. And it hasn't been a good one. And I think that if you look at the history of this, starting with Clinton's, President Clinton's efforts to intervene in the Israeli elections in 1996 to try to help get Shimon Peres elected and that didn't work. Um, but you only have to go to recent history and, and Donald Trump's a massive intervention, I would say, to a factor of 10 times what Clinton did to try to get Bibi reelected, and that didn't work. Uh, it didn't move the needle in the way that Netanyahu needed it to. So I think that, that the lesson is clear, and I believe that Joe Biden, as an experienced politician, understands the lesson that that try to intervene, try to tip the scales in favor of your favorite candidate is is not going to work and, and probably will backfire. So I think he'll be take pains to be above the fray. I suspect there'll be some kind of meeting with Netanyahu, probably a pull side or something, but some kind of acknowledgement of him as as the leader of the opposition. Uh, and and uh, playing it basically straight with Lapid, embracing him as the Prime Minister of Israel, the leader of the country, um, doing that, of course, with President Bushy Herzog as well, who'll be hosting him for dinner. And and I think that, that the message that Biden will want to convey is uh, one uh, of broad American support for Israel. Of course, there's a subtext about these two moderate leaders, Lapid and, and Biden, struggling against the great political divide that exists in Israel and the United States today and trying to promote the same message. I mean, that I don't know whether you felt this way, but I thought that Lapid's speech to the nation after becoming prime minister was reminiscent of Biden's first speech to the nation after becoming president. Yep about how we need to come together and work together and, uh, for our common goals. And that's, that's the nature of these two politicians. They are very similar in that regard, moderates, pragmatists, trying to advance a, a, a moderate agenda in a very extreme situation. So to the extent that that message can come through, I think both of them will be strengthened somewhat by that. Yeah, I have to uh, agree. Lapid in the last election, uh, when I went in to interview him, uh, was very clear in terms of his messaging that, uh, uh, you know, he was trying to unite a country against uh, the threat of, uh, you know, right-wing populist nationalist forces, uh, trying to return sanity to the Israeli political scene, uh, to try to make politics boring again in Israel uh, after years of uh, turmoil and upheaval. Yeah, so, I mean, exactly. I think that, that that's exactly uh, the same message that Biden has for the American people. The problem is, as we can see in the United States, 
it's not working. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's an open question whether, uh, well, we'll find out, I guess, on November 1st after Election Day in Israel, whether uh, there are buyers for this, I guess, more hopeful type of politics uh, after the past year here where you had a, a very broad and diverse coalition government. Um, Martin, on this point, though, I wanted to ask you maybe a more, say, personal question. Uh, given your long years of experience in U.S. government, what happens, let's say, in the State Department, the White House, uh, the embassy here in Israel, when you wake up one morning to the news that some you know, backbench Knesset member no one has ever heard of has defected to the other side, that the Israeli government has lost you know, its parliamentary majority, that it's teetering, that basically the Israeli government that you were dealing with and planning with the day before may not be long for the world. What, what happens inside the U.S. government? What happens to U.S. foreign policymaking when, when an event like that happens in Israel? Well, there's a lot of, you know, whiskey, tango, fox kind of uh, expressions um, with plans kind of out the window. Uh, and it, um, uh, you know, it, it confounds all, all, uh, all the planning. Um, I think by now uh, the decision makers, policy makers in Washington have had enough experience with Israeli politics to know that, that this kind of thing can happen at any time. I mean, what is it, five elections in three years? Um, they're kind of used to it by now. Uh, but having, having said that, you know, on the political level, it's very problematic. But on the level of, of planning that goes on, um, much of the important planning is being done on the strategic level, the military-to-military level. Um, you know, what happens with with Iran is uh, very much today the meat of the relationship uh, on a strategic level. And and that goes on. That, that won't be disrupted. I was glad to see that Ayal Hulata, the Bennett's national security advisor, is staying on as, as Lapid's national security advisor. And, and the you know, national security establishment uh, is well established and well known to Washington, and, and so they, those relationships continue. Now, where I think there would be a big shift is if Netanyahu were to come into government and change the whole tone back to a kind of confrontational approach um, towards dealing uh, with Iran. There are a lot of understandings that have now been reached between the United States and Israel over how to deal with Iran, over how to differ over Iran. Uh, and, and Netanyahu as prime minister could, could disrupt the whole thing and send everybody back to the drawing boards again. Uh, it could become far more difficult uh, in the relationship between the United States and, and Israel. Uh, so I do think that none of them will be quoted on the record, but most of the policymakers in Washington uh, hoping that they, they don't have to go back to those bad old days of confrontation with a uh, right-wing Netanyahu government that, that was taking um, stands uh, designed to, to totally disrupt American strategy towards uh, Iran. Yep. Just like all of us, uh, we're, we're awaiting the results uh, after November 1st, if there are results. Who knows? Um, right. Martin, with our remaining time, I wanted to zoom out a little bit uh, and to get your sense of, I mean, there's no other way to kind of frame it, the state of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the prospects for a two-state solution, which is a question that Israel Policy Forum gets a lot. It's a question I get a lot. Uh, it's very fashionable, I think, to be a bit disillusioned these days, to lose hope about uh, whether it can ever get done. Um, but on the flip side, we all are at least aware that the other options could spell, I guess, ruin for Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. So as someone who has been uh, intimately involved on this particular issue for so many years, what do you tell people, uh, by the way, from both the right and the left, who say the two-state solution is... Well, the, the first point I make is that 
um, there is no other solution. Everything else that's prescribed is just a recipe for continuing the conflict, not for ending the conflict. And those who, who put forward alternative plans for one-state solutions uh, are not talking about solutions. They're just talking about a kind of never-ending uh, conflict. And, and I think they should be exposed as such because, because they're not seeking peace. They're, they're seeking something else. Um, but those who, who seek peace have a problem, as you suggest, in that their solution, the two-state solution, doesn't seem to have a lot of credibility at the moment, um, nor many takers, uh, for that matter, uh, in Israel, certainly. And, and I think it's really important to try to breathe uh, some more hope into uh, the prospects for a two-state solution, because it is, remains, and will forever be, in my opinion, the only solution that will bring peace between Israel and the Palestinians, two states for two people. Um, it's simple, it's straightforward, it's been the solution that goes all the way back to the founding of the State of Israel back in the 1940s, and, and it will be, uh, even in the 2040s, still the only to resolve this problem. And, and um, there I have uh, been converted as a result of the book that I wrote about Henry Kissinger's efforts to make peace in the Middle East, uh, converted from the view that I had when I went into the Clinton administration that we could resolve the conflict quickly to believing now that it's absolutely essential to take incremental steps in that direction, mm -hmm. especially when it looks like you don't have the leadership on both sides that have the capability or the will to move forward to an end of conflict resolution. It's important, essential, that each side takes steps towards that ultimate uh, achievement. And, and, uh, you know, I think that the Bennett-Lapid government intended to move in that direction did take, I think, two very important steps, and Benny Gatz was important in this too, the defence minister, in terms of increasing the number of Palestinians working in Israel to something like 150,000 from the West Bank coming to Israel every day. And now the numbers are going up from 20 to 30,000 Gazans uh, coming in to work in Israel. That boosts the economic uh, circumstances of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. And, and by doing so, creates a, a more positive environment. But that time, it can only be the first step. I'm disappointed that the Biden administration has not taken additional steps in a more assertive way to, to get the government of Israel to fulfill its commitment, for instance, to thousands of permits for Palestinians to build in Area A, something they promised to do, but don't seem to be doing it. At the same time, they're putting up 5,000 new settlement units in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. I think that the US position on this should be one for one. They keep on talking about equal, equal measures of dignity and freedom. How about equal settlement uh, units? How about for every settlement unit that that Israel builds, there'll be one for the Palestinians in Area A. That would be equitable. And that would give the Palestinians the greater hope that the 60% of the West Bank that Israel now completely controls is not lost forever for them, uh, because without it, there can be no viable uh, Palestinian state and a viable two-state solution. <clears throat> so it's steps like those that I think um, need to be taken in the interim uh, so that each, in, 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 in these different ways, Israel and the Palestinians are signaling to each other a commitment to the two-state solution and bring the Arab states into it as well and get them to take steps to support it so that you can start to create a positive dynamic and rebuild faith from the ground level up in, in the idea that a two-state solution actually 
is viable as a way of ending the conflict. So you beat me to my final question when you brought up uh, your new and terrific book about Henry Kissinger, which we should mention came out last year. It's titled Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy. And you said that Kissinger was able to make real and genuine progress in Middle East peace in the 1970s um, after the Yom Kippur War through uh, an incremental and slow and methodical approach, uh, kind of prodding Israeli and Arab leaders, and not through, as you said, maybe the more Oslo-esque big swings and big bangs, uh, conflict-ending agreements and resolutions. So I think uh, the big question that I had for you, uh, and we can close with this and bring it all back to the upcoming visit of the U.S. president, what has changed from the 1970s to to now in terms of U.S. foreign policy making? Is it just the sheer talent and ability of someone like Henry Kissinger? Is it the the power and leverage and prestige that the U.S. had, say, back in the 1970s compared to maybe where it is right now? Where where do you where do you land on on that question? And I guess where does that take us moving forward in? in the sense of, are we looking for a Kissinger or are we actually in a more, let's say, systemic, uh, problematic period in terms of U.S. foreign policy writ large? Well, those are two factors that were definitely important in Kissinger's uh, success, the the mighty influence of the United States in, in the Middle East in the midst of the Cold War and, and Kissinger's own um, personality and, and technique. Uh, but he dealt with uh, great leaders, uh, you know, Anwar Sadat, uh, Golda Meir, notwithstanding her stubbornness and reluctance to move forward when Kissinger convinced her he, she could bring her government and her people behind mm-hmm. her, and he came to appreciate that. Uh, Moshe Dayan, Yitzhak Rabin, uh, Hafez al-Assad of Syria, uh, King Hussein and of Jordan, King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, these were all big figures who were capable of making decisions, taking risks, and bringing their people along with them. And we seem to be lacking that for one reason or another. Um, the way that the Israeli political system has evolved in particular has made that kind of leadership uh, much more difficult. But um, having said that, I think that... that uh, the, the critical element here, given those circumstances, is to understand Kissinger's incremental approach. You said, Neri, that this, you know, as opposed to the Oslo-esque uh, process. Well, Oslo actually was an incremental process. We forget That's that. Fair. Uh, the problem was that Oslo was abandoned, first by Netanyahu and then by, by Barak. Uh, and, and if we'd stuck with the step-by-step process that Rabin had introduced as a result of his experience dealing with Kissinger, uh, we probably would have been in a much better position. That's conjecture. But, you know, the idea of redeployments of the Israeli armed forces, giving the Palestinians incremental control, uh, tested over time with no timetables, and no talk of what the actual eventual outcome would be uh, was was the kind of incremental process that that we need to to reintroduce and and in that regard there's one other lesson of Kissinger's diplomacy that I think is critically important Kissinger understood that for his process to work there had to be a territorial element to the process That is to say, Israel had to withdraw from Arab territory as the part of the process of getting agreements. And and that is what has been lost here. Um, And the the settler movement in Israel has had great success in obfuscating this point. Now, Resolution 242 uh, provided for Israeli withdrawal to the 67 lines with adjustments, uh, but uh, 
nevertheless, withdrawal was was part of the process. And withdrawal needs to be reintroduced to the process. As I suggested, can be done in small ways. Permits for Palestinians to, to build in Area C. Other things that can be done in Area C uh, that show both sides that that um, de facto annexation, let alone de jure annexation of the West Bank, is not the way to achieve a resolution of the conflict. And I think that that the incremental approach, infused with a territorial component, is an essential uh, element in reviving um, a viable Israeli-Palestinian peace process. I think all of that would be a quite sensible approach and a, a lot more positive than maybe what we've seen here in recent years. Uh, Martin, thank you so much for that fantastic conversation and for setting the scene ahead of President Biden's visit here next week. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens, and then uh, we'll likely have you on in future to uh, maybe discuss the positive and maybe negative uh, repercussions of uh, next week and the coming months here uh, in Israel. Look forward to that. Thank you, Nari. Always a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, that was Ambassador Martin Indick. Many thanks to him again for his generous time and insights. Also, special thanks to our producer Jacob Gilman and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening.